Hebrews 20, 20, we see Jesus, increment 2, 5, 6. We are very bold, part 2. In this Wednesday's message and the Wednesday to come, we will be hovering over the doctrine of the new covenant, or better yet, the new covenant will be hovering over our thoughts, hopefully. And we'll be trying to embrace or keep embraced the themes of the Second Corinthian epistle of consolation in connection with Hebrews. We'll try to also keep in our thoughts the correlation there and also our ten affirmations of tetelestai phalanx. We'll try to keep that within the sphere of our communication along with the subject of vertical finality, which we introduced earlier on in the year. So all of these things will be coming together, but under the great overarching theme always, and without exception, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Father, we pray today that you will grant us the grace to receive insights and therefore to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Second Corinthians, and indeed the entirety of the Corinthian correspondence, and that's another thing I'm doing now, is sort of presenting a kind of scaffolding for a future study in Corinthians, either done by me or someone else. But the entire Corinthian correspondence, that's First and Second Corinthians, in its current canonical form, is eminently profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, as all the scriptures are. In the entirety of First and Second Corinthians, we call Second Corinthians two core, we find the encouragement of the scriptures. That's paptes paraklesios ton graphon, the consolation derived from the scriptures, the consolation that the scriptures convey and that we may have confident hope in order to face the things we're facing today. Today there's a word called evil, and that word evil is offensive to people. It's off-putting and sometimes even repugnant or disgusting to people. The reason for that is the standard which defines evil and distinguishes good from evil has been dismantled, deconstructed, and destroyed. So the term evil itself is offensive to people. But we know from the scriptures that the scriptures themselves, the word of righteousness gives us the ability to distinguish between good and evil because it gives us a platform of values and virtues and eternal values especially. So we're in need of boldness today for many reasons, not least because the foundations which give distinction between good and evil have been destroyed in the minds of many people. Secondly, as we've mentioned in Sunday's message, increment 255, with a little homage to Jonathan Kahn, the return of the gods and the escalation of the activities of principalities and powers in our time, coupled with an apostasy that is worldwide, 
all occasion our need to be very bold when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the virtues and the values that are derived from the scriptures. And so we are very bold, part two is the name of today's message. Again, in the entirety of First and Second Corinthians, which we're interweaving into our study of Hebrews, we find the encouragement of the scriptures, that is, the consolation that the scriptures convey, that we may have confident hope. Romans 15.4 connects that consolation, paraklesios, with hope, elpida, or elpida here. The scriptures assimilated by us with faith become in us an undercurrent of consolation. Not only consolation that we feel and experience, but consolation we may deliver to others. I'll say that again. The scriptures assimilated by us with faith become an undercurrent of consolation during our endurance of the current agona and also that yields to great boldness in the face of what Pastor Jonathan Kahn calls correctly the return of the gods. I've spoken of his book. I'm partway through it and I commend it to you so far at least. Along with the return of the gods or the Elohim, the gods of idol, uh, the gods of idolatry such as Balaam or Baal rather, and Ishtar under various names and Moloch. Along with their return because of the open door given to them in America and elsewhere, there is a great apostasy and turn to idolatry that's presently underway in America and elsewhere in the world. Paul emphatically warns us against idolatry. In fact, he says pretty emphatically in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, my beloved ones, agapitoi, flee from idolatry. John closes his first epistle with the words, children, guard yourselves against idols or guard yourselves from idols. Idolatry is a perennial problem in this evil age, but at certain times in history, it rears its ugly image with ferocity. We're living on the cusp of one of those times now. Paraclesis, as we have studied it in previous increments and elsewhere, really, paraclesis, this is a key biblical word, Paraclesis means consolation. In the context of Corinthians, it means consolation. Other places, it means encouragement or incentivization or incentive. But it means consolation in the context of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians especially, because there it is revealed and balanced with thlipsis, which is tribulation or pressure, and pathema or suffering, sharing the sufferings of Christ. So consolation is what balances those things out in this so-called evil age. And it is an evil age because we must distinguish it from the messianic age, which is future world, but which has already come to us in the person of the incarnate Christ. Paraclesis then carries 
the nuances of encouragement and incentive as well as consolation and comfort, usually depending on the context. In the context of two core, this is how I write it in my notes, just almost like one word. In the context of two core, Second Corinthians, especially in its liftoff in chapter 1, it significantly carries the nuance of consolation because paraklesis is balanced on the other side of the scales with flipse. I'll write it up here, T-H-L-I-P-S. E-I. Thlipse. Thlipsi or thlipse means trials or difficult circumstances. It's found in 2 Corinthians 1.4 two times. Thlipse. In the world you will have thlipsis, Jesus said. Be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Meaning that as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so does the consolation of Christ. And so the sufferings of Christ also is pathemata, P-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-A, pathemata. That's also a word found in 2 Corinthians, the pathemata of Christ in 2 Corinthians 1.5. So again, paraclesis found in the context here is balanced against thlipse, which are pressures and trials involved with this time in between the two great alterations, and pathemata, which is the honor that we experience of suffering with Christ, enduring the sufferings of Christ because he endured the hostility of sinners against himself in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, as we will if we choose to live godly in 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 1 Timothy 4, 10. And so... Again, paraclesis should be translated as consolation because it's balanced on the other side with flipse, trials or difficult circumstances, and the sufferings of Christ, pathemata to Christu, 2 Corinthians 1.5, which Christians partake of in this time in between the two great eschatological alterations. This also can be compared for your own edification with First Peter 4.12-19, which describes the ordeal of this present in-between time. And so we receive consolation, especially in seasons of apostasy and idolatry, which only upsteps the hostility against Christian values and Christian virtues and those who hold them. Back in the days of Rome, Christians were labeled as haters of humanity. It's getting close to that again now, haters of humanity. In fact, the human condition and the present state of the age and of the world at large at this time is such that real consolation is indeed a precious and welcome commodity, and it comes from the teaching of the scriptures. This consolation is what is offered and what is truly conveyed through the scriptures when read and taught under the direction and influence of the Lord, the Spirit, who evokes faith in the hearers. The Lord, the Spirit, from 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, is an apt title for our Lord, especially in a time 
of the return of Baal, whose name means Lord and who claims domination and lordship. We can easily understand the meaning of everlasting consolation when we understand that its giver is the eternal spirit, aeonion pneuma, Hebrews 9.14, also known as the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29, and that it is given over and against the adverse circumstances. Consolation, that is, is given over and against the adverse circumstances of this thankfully transient age. Thankfully, this age called darkness in 1 John 2.8 is already passing away. And in Galatians 1.4, this evil age is in connection with 2 Corinthians 4.18, transient. Thank God for that. Whichever way you slice it, two core chapters 1 through 9 in some the estimates of some scholars can stand alone as an epistle of its of its own some people as i've said divided second corinthians 1 through 9 from second corinthians 10 to 13 say it may be two epistles or two correspondences it's not necessary that we view it that way some people view it as three meaning second corinthians 8 and 9 is a an epistle in itself having to do with giving and the gift that paul was trying to collect for the embattled saints in jerusalem but whichever way you slice it second corinthians chapter 1 through 9 can in fact stand alone as an epistle of consolation paraclesis as hebrews also can especially if one takes hebrews 13:22 as i've said before as a description of the whole homily. On these Wednesdays, I'll also be recapturing and repeating some of the things we've dealt with on Sunday in a more of a preachy way that happens sometimes on Sundays with preachers and sermons, etc. For in Hebrews 13.22, it says, Please put up with this word of consolation, paraclesis. Whichever way you view this verse, Hebrews, like 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 9, and really, I think, the entirety of the whole of 2 Corinthians 1 through 13 can certainly be considered an epistle of consolation because it was initially sent, that is, Hebrews, to a people, probably a house church, who were experiencing the sufferings of Christ and were in need of the consolation that also overflows from Jesus, They're merciful, notice that, compassionate and merciful and faithful archpriest, Hebrews 2.17 to 19, to 18 rather. Consolation is also understandably described as everlasting because, well, for one thing, the Spirit is always with us. I'll always be here, he says to us. And Jesus said he will be in you and with you. He'll be with you and in you forever in John 14, 17. So the spirit is with us forever. And so the consolation he gives is everlasting. He himself is called parakletos, the consoler. And he's always with us. So the consolation is, of course, everlasting, as Second Thessalonians 2, 16 says. It's given to us along with the confident expectation that the suffering of this present time is not worthy even to be compared with the glory that is about to be unveiled in us or to us, Romans 8.18, as well as 1 Peter 1.7 and 4.13. Romans 8.18 
elegantly corresponds with 2 Corinthians 4.17, which describes our present light affliction, our temporary light affliction, and contrasts it with an eternal weight of glory, a very, very heavy glory against a very, very light and temporary ex adversity of our present time or affliction, in fact, eclipses. Until then, we identify not with those who draw back into perishing, but those who persevere to the soul being saved. I think I would put as a key verse for our present year, 2023, Hebrews 10.39, we choose an identification with those who persevere to the saving of the soul or the being saved, and we choose not to identify with those who withdraw into perishing, apoleia. This is the year of the saving and the, or the being saved and the perishing, as well as the year of the Lord, the Spirit. We are not, and I think each of us has to make this declaration for him or herself, we are not of those who shrink back into the perishing, ice apoleon but those of faith to the being saved of the soul, eis peripoesin suke, the possession of the soul or the deliverance and preservation of the soul. In Hebrews 10.39, let's call that the key verse from Hebrews for 2023. And let's call 2 Corinthians 3.17 and 18 the key verse from 2 Cor. In any case, we identify as the being saved. Now, we could almost call the epistle to the Corinthians regarding consolation. We've seen Hebrews under the title of regarding completion, as we've seen 56 Psalms entitled that, Aistotelos, in the Septuagint translation. So let's call regarding consolation. Now, regarding consolation, we have in Revelation tears wiped from all eyes. He will wipe away their tears. That's a universal and everlasting consolation connected with the new creation of all things. Revelation 21 is extraordinarily significant in this regard. Again, Revelation 21.4, universal and everlasting consolation, the wiping away of all tears. It's also connected in context with the new creation of all things in 21.5. This new creation also and its attendant consolation is tied integrally, integrally with the new covenant. The theme of the new covenant is also found in Revelation 21, backing up into verse 3. The new covenant itself is a consolation from God, an everlasting consolation. It is an everlasting covenant. In Hebrews 13.20, it offers everlasting consolation from God, prophesied as it was in answer to the weeping of Rachel at Ramah in Jeremiah 31.15 to 17, compared with 31 to, 31 to 34 of Jeremiah. Revelation 21.3 says, look, God's home is with humankind, that's with all of humankind, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God in person will be with them and be their God. What is that? That's an allusion to Jeremiah 31.32, Septuagint 38.32, which can be compared with Hebrews 8.10. I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. They're going to be happy people. We will all be happy people because happy is the people whose God is the Lord. On top of this, Revelation 21.5 ties the new covenant with the new creation of all things. Look, I'm creating or making all things new. On top of that, Revelation 21.6 brings into focus that it is done. It is done, meaning that the new creation of all things was already affected in eternity. The nunc stans, as they call it in Latin, when Jesus, the Lamb of God, said, Tetelestai. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, said, Tetelestai, from the cross, the slaughtered lamb had created the new heavens and the new earth. The paschal lamb of God had been slaughtered at the foundation of the world. In other words, in Revelation 13, 8, that is, the new creation. Future world was brought into being in the slaughtered lamb. The passion of the slaughtered lamb is the action that created the new creation. The anakephaliosis, or the summing up of all things in Christ, in Ephesians 1.10, is the summing up of all things in love, in Romans 13.9. And herein is love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, in 1 John 3.16. And again, herein is love, that God sent his Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, that we would live through him. Remember, all will be made alive in Christ. In Christ, all will be made alive. Compare 1 Corinthians 4, or 1 John rather, 4, 9 to 10 with 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Again, regarding consolation, the new covenant comes forth from God as the ultimate consolation to mankind. And of course, for Rachel, in Jeremiah 31, 15 to 17, match that up with 31, 31 to 34, Rachel, and therefore for Israel, and for the new covenant community, but also for the world, for all the nations. He was personally and particularly the propitiation for our sins, in 1 John 2, 2, is universally the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. In connection with this propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, 4, 9, Romans 3, 25, and Hebrews 2, 17, Jesus is called the Savior, not of Israel, not of the church, but of the world. 1 John 4, 14 compared with John 3, 17 and 4, 42. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the new covenant. We're talking about the longest quotation of a passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and it's found right here in Hebrews 8, 8b. It's always good to keep putting our finger back on this passage to know that that's what we are hovering around and hovering over, or that's what's hovering over us, rather. Hebrews 8, 8b says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For then they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, said the Lord. Says the Lord. This goes back to Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel. Please notice, this is the covenant that I will covenant, literally. This is the covenant, noun, that I will covenant. 
verb, with the house of Israel. A covenant that God covenants. It's a unilateral and unconditional covenant. That's what we're going to take a look at next Wednesday on February 15th, Lord willing. This is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts I will inscribe them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what's alluded to in Revelation 21.3 also. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen. That's important there because it's a reference to Uranopolis. Not just fellow man or brother, but fellow citizen has the Septuagint translation. So there is a reference here to Uranopolis or the heavenly city. None of them will teach his, his fellow citizen or his brother saying, know the Lord. Because all will know me from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, therefore, Septuagint 38, 31 to 34, is a splendid example of God speaking provisionally to the fathers in the prophets. That's how Hebrews 1.1 leads off. Hebrews leads off with that idea, God speaking in the prophets, God speaking, for example, in Jeremiah to prophesy the new covenant. And so Hebrews 8, 8b through 12 elegantly corresponds with Hebrews 1.1. And God also spoke definitively in 1.2 Hebrews in his son by completing that predicted new covenant in Jesus, his son, and by Jesus' complete and perfect obedience to the Father's universally salvific will. For it was the heart in the heart of the Son of God and in the mind of Christ that God wrote his laws. And it was this Son who fulfilled both the law and the prophets, in Matthew 5.17, by his obedience to the extent of the death of the cross. Obedience that perfectly and completely performed the two commandments on which all the law and prophets depend. Because I love my Father, I go from here, Jesus said on the way to the cross in John 14.31. Galatians 2.20, he loved us and gave himself for us. Titus 2.14, he loved us and gave himself for us. He loved me and gave himself for me very personally, Galatians 2.20. Jesus Christ and him crucified, therefore, the overarching theme of all scripture that interpenetrates every word, 1 Corinthians 2.2, is the completion of the new covenant promise. I'll say that again. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the completion of the new covenant promise. The new covenant community has the distinct privilege in the believing, Romans 15, 13, to have a participation in Jesus Christ in the obedience of faith and to be a graced imitation of Jesus and representation of him in this world by being as he is in this world. So I recapture and repeat a verse that we dealt with briefly in Sunday's message Increment 255, it reads like this in 1 John 4, 17. This is how the love of God is completed with us, or we could say in us, so that we may have bold confidence. There it is. We are very bold. Part two, 
we may have bold confidence. This time we have, we go from paraklesis to another word that begins with the letter pi in the Greek. We go to parisian, P-A-R-R-E-S, that's A to E-S-I-A-N. Parisian or parisian. And that means freedom of speech, but it means outspokenness. It also means boldness. It can mean great boldness and outspokenness of speech, which we have to have when we proclaim the gospel and we urge the world to be reconciled to God because they are reconciled to God. But here, this is how the love of God is completed with us so that we may have bold confidence in the day of judgment. Now, if you match 1 John 4.17 with 1 Peter 4.17, the day of judgment is now. Because the scripture says the judgment begins in the house of God. And it has begun in the house of God. We are living right now in a day of judgment. And I believe that this judgment could end up in a severe judgment on the United States of America. But that is also a judgment that can be not only forestalled but reversed. And we could actually see the ushering in of a renaissance in history for our country and for the world, in fact, if we indeed fulfill this mandate to be very bold. And by we, I mean a hefty new covenant community. This is how the love of God is completed with us so that we may have bold confidence in the day of judgment that just as he, Jesus, is, so are we in this world. That means in this time in between the two alterations, this world, this age. There is no fear in love. That's te agape. In this case, the articular word te agape. T-E-A-G-A-P-E. It's sort of like hey agape. And it's this time it's te agape the agape and whenever there's an articular noun te agape or he agape we're talking specifically about God's love being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so it says there is no fear in the love he agape te agape because fear anticipates punishment there's no anticipation of punishment in those who know the love of God and in those who love God. There is no anticipation of punishment in the day of judgment for those who know the love of God. The one who fears, therefore, meaning fears punishment in the day of judgment, has not been perfected in love. Perfected there is completed. It's one of the key words that you find in Hebrews, and it's related to the word tetelestai. Not perfected in love. Moses was not perfected in love because at Mount Sinai he said, I exceedingly fear and I'm terrified and I'm trembling. It's because the old covenant didn't offer the fearlessness of love, but the anticipation of punishment because the unaided flesh cannot fulfill the demands of the law and the law promised or threatened with death. So the new covenant 
is surely a consolation. The old covenant has a ministry of death and condemnation. We know this from 2 Corinthians 3. It involves fear, the anticipation of punishment. Again, Hebrews 12.21 describes the sight at the giving of the old covenant at Sinai. So terrifying was the spectacle, said the Hebrews author, that Moses himself said, I'm trembling and terrified. We are not as Moses was at that moment. There's lots of ways we are like Moses when we believe, when we have faith, when we don't fear the wrath of the government or the king. There's a lot of times we can be like Moses, but we're not like Moses at that moment, fearing and trembling and terrified. Rather, we are as Jesus is in this world, 1 John 4, 17. By a graced participation in the Lord, the Spirit, and by a graced imitation of Jesus, which we find in 2 Corinthians 4, 10 to 11, in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, as well as 1 John 2, 6, leading to a graced manifestation of the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies in this time in between. In this time in between, the two universal alterations, we focus our attention not on things that are seen, but on things which are not seen, but the things which are seen are transient and passing away. They're in the process of vanishing. We'll see this again in Hebrews 8.13 when we have a whole new raft of doctrine coming in there along with the A.D. 70 trajectory. This age is on the verge of vanishing, but the things which are not seen are eternal or everlasting. So if you combine 2 Corinthians 4.18 with Hebrews 11.1 1 regarding the unseen things, it's a very profitable explosion of correlation. It's an elegant, I like to call it, correlation. Faith is the conviction of the reality of unseen things. Unseen things include things that are present but invisible, like the alteration of the universal and human situation. And... Faith also is the conviction or the assurance of things that are hoped for, which is the alteration, in especially the alteration of the human condition that is yet to be manifested to sight or to perception, empirically viewed and observed. We walk by faith. That's another of our affirmations, however, coming down, by the way, coming down the road. We walk by faith and not by sight, says 2 Corinthians 5, 7. That means that we are boldly confident of the unseen change of the universal situation that occurred in the crucified and risen Jesus. And it means that we are boldly expectant of the as yet unseen change of the universal and human condition that is to be brought about when our great archpriest appears a second time, having appeared once at the juncture of the eons, he comes again a second time, bringing salvation to awaiting humanity and awaiting creation. Another elegant correlation for your edification, Hebrews 9.28 with Romans 8.19-23. Walking by faith in this way, then, constitutes a being saved and deliverance from this present evil age Galatians 1, 4, and 5, while walking by sight, on the other hand, is associated with perishing because by sight we can only be aware of what is passing away 
and on the verge of vanishing altogether. To be focused on something that's going away is the epitome of depression. To be focused on something, things that are lost is the epitome of sadness and the opposite of boldness. We walk by faith. Faith is the assurance and the very hypostasis, the personal reality of things hoped for. Consequently, when we walk by faith, we align ourselves, our souls, our minds, our hearts, our very being, with the second affirmation of Tetelestai Phalanx, which we have adapted from Tukor. We are very bold. Tukor 3.12. Compare Hebrews 4.16, and that's how we're interweaving this. Hebrews 4.16, speaking of being very bold. Therefore, let's approach without spokenness or boldness the throne of grace so that we may take hold of mercy and find grace for timely help. And so we are as bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. We are as bold as a lion. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Even in this world where things are continually being corrupted, and are fading away. Even as our adversary, the devil, roams around as a ravenous, what? Roaring lion. Bold as a lion, we face that lion. We resist the devil and he flees from us. We're the stronger lion because he that is in us is greater than he that is in this world. We are very bold even as our outer man deteriorates in 2 Corinthians 4.16 and the outer man our superficial appearance and superficial humanity does deteriorate despite desperate attempts to cosmeticize its superficial appearance. The best we can do is make a little more superficially attractive that which is necessarily being destroyed, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Instead of reacting with desperation at this aging and dying of the external man, we have confidence and we're bold that when the earthly tent in which we currently reside is finally destroyed, we have a house not made by human hands everlasting in the heavens. Oikion, akeropoieton, aeonion, a house not made by human construction, everlasting in the heavens. Second Corinthians Five, one to two. In fact, if you're at a place where you can turn to it, you can turn to Second Corinthians five. Speaking of two cores interweaving with Hebrews, don't do this if you're driving a car or if you're using heavy equipment. This is a major component of our everlasting consolation, and because of it, we are very bold. I love how this elegantly fits into our theme. 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Cor 5, 1. My translation expanded a little and given a sense that Paul had in mind. What he had in mind in this case is the exile and return from exile. The same theme of Jeremiah 31, 15 to 17. Please notice this. For if we know, for we know, that's a confident knowing, incidentally, we confidently know that if our earthly house, this tent, of ours is destroyed, we have a house, not of human construction, everlasting in the heavens. And then skip to verse 5 of 2 Corinthians. 
Now he that prepared us for this is God himself. He that prepared us for this, God prepared us to leave this tent and move into our house. We're made for this. So why would we fear death? Why would we fear leaving this planet? Why would we fear departing from this life? It's far, far better to be with Christ. I don't know about you, but especially on days that are quite brisk, like it was 108 degrees below zero wind chill factor on Mount Washington in New Hampshire last week. I would have preferred a house over a tent. I don't know about you. Now he that prepared us for this is God himself who has given to us the spirit. There he is, the spirit, the Lord, the spirit as a down payment. Consequently, Look at this. I love this verse. The elegance of the correlation is just remarkable. We're always boldly confident and courageous. That's both senses of this. The word here isn't parousian, but it is T-H-A-R-R-E-O, thareo. We are boldly, always boldly and confident and courageous knowing that while we're at home in the body, that is this tent, this deteriorating outer man, as long as we're in this deteriorating outer man, we're in a kind of exile from our homeland. And that's what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4.16, the outer decaying man. As long as we're at home in the body, that's this tent, which is deteriorating, it says... We're in momentary exile from the Lord. Notice that translation because I'm capturing the sense there according to what I'm mandated to do in Nehemiah 8.8. We're in momentary exile from the Lord, our true and permanent home. For we, then it says, then it says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes people have that in parentheses. Maybe it belongs in parentheses, maybe not. Verse 8, yes, we're confidently bold, he says again, thyrao, enduring our exile and pilgrimage with a confident mind is what he's talking about. Our temporary exile, our pilgrimage, our temporary sojourn, we're, we're not accidental tourists, we're actually intentional tourists in this world. Even though we'd prefer instead to be in exile from the deteriorating body, Paul says, and at home, with the Lord. That's our place of permanence, if you recall Jeremiah 31 17, where we talked about that before. Our place of permanence. It's a great consolation from our place of temporary adversity and affliction. Now look at 2 Corinthians 5 9. We're ready to close fairly soon. Therefore, whether we view our present condition as at home in this body, how do you view your, I view it both ways. I view being here in this deteriorating body. Yeah, that's reality. That's my reality in this, this world. It's yours too. It's our truth. Whether we view our present condition as at home in this body, this tent, this deteriorating superficial outward person, or whether we view it as being in exile from the Lord, I more often think of it as that being in exile from the Lord temporarily. However we view it, we aim to be pleasing to him. And how do we please him? By faith. Hebrews 11.6, 6. 
Here is a veritable highway to Hebrews 11, 1 to 40, therefore, from 2 Core 5. We are, in fact, both. That's our situation. We are both at home, like it or not, in these present mortal bodies, 2 Core 4, 10, and 11. And we are also in temporary exile from our permanent home with the Lord. But notice I said temporary exile. This meantime involves a momentary and light affliction, flipsis, used nine times in two core. It's in 2 Corinthians, well, you, you'll see all of the references to it, nine of them in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 8. There's nine references, and that kind of gives a possible proof that 2 Corinthians Chapters 1 to 9 may constitute an epistle because all the words for thlipsis are found within the first eight chapters. And during this time, we participate in the suffering of Messiah, which is a blessedness. We can't participate in the Messiah's sufferings in the next world. That's why we're left in this one, to have the privilege in Philippians 1.29 of suffering together with him. We got to go through this. We got to live this life. So enjoy it while you got it. And so, the, while we participate in the suffering of the Messiah, pathema, that's used three times in 2 Corinthians, all in the first chapter, while at the same time we have paraklesis, that's used ten times. And so paraklesis starts to outweigh the thlipsis here, ten instead of nine. And parakaleo, the, the verb form of paraklesis, to be consoled, well, that's found 18 times, but it's found throughout the entire epistle, which gives the argument that maybe the whole epistle hangs together as an epistle of consolation. It goes from 2 Corinthians 1.6 all the way to 13.11, where parakaleo is used. And that comes especially from the spirit and the scriptures, that consolation. The pressures we are under, incidentally, and here's a little pearl of wisdom for you. The pressure we are under during this time in between the two great alterations is in large part the gentle omnipotence of the Lord the Spirit ever tapping his divine chisel, transforming us into the image of the Lord, taking a block of marble and turning it into David. Better than that, the son and descendant of David. I'll say it again, because there's a little bit of a, well, a figure of speech here, gentle omnipotence. The pressure we are under during this time in between, which Paul calls light compared to the glories that are going to follow, this pressure we're under during this time in between the two great alterations is the gentle omnipotence of the Lord the Spirit ever tapping his divine chisel, transforming us into the image of the Lord from one degree of glory to the next. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, in fact, the clause from glory to glory, apodoxes es es doxon. Doxon, doxa, glory, is also a key word in two core, used, I think, about 17 times. From glory to glory refers to the ever-abiding glory that is of the ministry of righteousness or justification, which is always increasing glory, as opposed to the glory that was always fading, the glory of the old covenant, which shone from Moses' face in 2 Corinthians 3.7. A glory of the ministry of condemnation in 2 Corinthians 3.9, 1 
with its fearful expectation of punishment by death. We are being transformed from glory to glory so that we may be conformed into the image of the heavenly man, the son of man, the glory of the Christ, the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. So an argument, and this is for a scaffolding, anyone that wants to do a study in the future on 2 Corinthians, there's an argument for the unit integrity of 2 Corinthians, the entirety of it, chapters 1 to 13, which is contrary to some scholarship, by the word parakaleo, used 18 times, and I have all the verses written down in the printed version of this message. There's also an argument, if you want to get into dialectics, and we're going to get into one in the next Wednesday's message, I'm going to get into a dialectic with Lewis Berry Chafer. Me and Chafer mix it up a little bit in a, in a friendly dialectic. Arguments for the separateness of 2 Corinthians chapters 1 to 9 as a separate epistle in itself is by the use of thlipsis, which is used nine times, but all within the first eight chapters. Also, paraklesis used ten times, all within the, last, the first eight chapters. And doxa for glory, all 17 uses of that found in the first eight chapters. So there's a strong indication here that there could be a separate epistle in the first nine chapters, or even the first seven chapters, but that's all just kind of fun dialectic. So I'll really close with this paragraph. In any case, we live and advance with vertical finality in our coordinated response of faith to the word and the spirit. I'm speaking now for the entire New Covenant community. We live and we advance with vertical finality by our coordinated response of faith to the word and the spirit. In an ever-increasing receptivity to insight, that's how we grow from glory to glory and are transformed. Consequently, it is by the receiving of ever-increasing receptivity to insight that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the action of the Lord, the Spirit. The Lord acting by his Spirit, in other words. In this meantime, where we participate in the sufferings of Christ, and in the consolation at the same time that is in Christ, we aren't whiners, complainers, quitters, excuse makers. We aren't bitter because of our so-called lot in life or the bad hand we're dealt. We're not projectors of blame and not those who compare ourselves with others or measure ourselves by others, which is not a wise policy at all in 2 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, two core, 10, 12 to 13. No, our hope is in is firm, as we learned in our first affirmation, and we are very bold in the second affirmation. We're very bold because we do not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead and who delivers and preserves us from death, 2 Cor 1, 9 to 10, until he deems it time to receive us to himself in paradise. And we are very bold here. We return to our Hebrews theme in Hebrews 8, 8b to 12. Precisely, we are very bold precisely because of the new covenant. Amen.